Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. In some ways, reading First and Second Samuel in the Bible can be a lot like experiencing one of those old-time radio or television serials. You know, a story that plays out through installments, and in each one, the main character finds themselves in a perilous situation, which either gets resolved or ends in a cliffhanger until the next chapter of the installment. Case in point, previously, or last time in the book of First Samuel, the little emerging nation that could, Israel, was challenged yet again by her longtime adversary, the Philistines. Despite confronting their most formidable foe yet, a gigantic, imposing warrior champion named Goliath, the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty, once again saved the day and the life of his people. Yahweh showed up front and center through the unexpected and surprising emergence of his newly anointed servant, the divinely chosen, heir apparent, future king of Israel, a teenager named David. And what was supposed to have been a long, drawn-out cage match between two champions, a fight card more than a month in the making, ended before it even got started with a single, not-so-lucky, but actually rather miraculous headshot heard round the world. As with the firing of David's first stone from his slingshot, Goliath took a bullet right between the eyes and fell down dead. But, dear listeners, as we return to our story, the conflict is far from over. The greater battle is only just beginning, as Israel's true enemy is revealed not to be out there, but much closer to home. For the fearsome and intimidating sight of Goliath is about to be eclipsed by the dreaded but often overlooked green-eyed monster rearing his ugly head. As we turn the page and prepare to listen, a true friend will emerge alongside the growing threat of an unnecessary and undesirable foe, both of them friend and foe from within the same family. Two portraits of our very human nature will be placed side by side before us, contrasting pictures of the best and the worst we can become as we either yield before the will of divine providence or persist in trying to rebel and go our own way. Which of these two images will we most relate to as we take a closer look? Which of these reflections of our humanity will we choose to embrace in our ongoing journey of faith to follow Christ? Let us ponder these very questions as we listen to the beginning of our next episode from 1 Samuel chapter 18. Greetings. This is a reading from 1 Samuel chapter 18 verses 1 through 9. Saul's growing fear of David. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, 
The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King Saul still reigns as Israel's monarch, but after the miraculous defeat of the Philistine champion named Goliath, young David's star is on the rise. For as we hear repeatedly throughout this chapter, the Lord was with David. God had already anointed David with his spirit and thereby his power. Eventually, David will be installed as the next king of Israel. But for now, David is a newly minted war hero. As both King Saul and David, along with the rest of the army of Israel, return home, there is music and singing in the streets. And the repeated chorus being sung goes like this. Saul has defeated his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This refrain will become so catchy, so memorable, that as we'll discover over the next few weeks of the story of 1 Samuel, even the Philistine kings will have heard this song. King Saul, however, does not like these lyrics. To say the chorus displeased him greatly is a bit of an understatement. Saul, upon hearing these words, becomes pretty hot, very angry, and extremely uncomfortable with all of the recognition David is getting. Now, to be clear, those who were singing this song were not actually trying to offend or somehow critique King Saul. They were intending to honor him. The dramatic increase in number in the lyrics from thousands to ten thousands that we hear in the song, this was a way of stressing or intensifying the main point. And that main point of the song was not, David is better than Saul. It was rather celebrating how the nation had been delivered from their enemies. And as the king of Israel, Saul shares in the credit of the nation's champion, one of his subjects, David. David's victory is Saul's victory because Saul is the leader of his people. But Saul doesn't focus on this. Instead, Saul fixates on the idea that someone is being celebrated and honored more than he is. And refusing to share the national spotlight and perceiving at the same time that David's rise in popularity threatens his own seat on the throne, King Saul, we read, starts keeping a close eye on David. And this myopic perspective causes Saul to quickly and dramatically spiral downward. We first witness Saul's descent into madness the very next day as David settles back into his former duty as a court musician. David got this gig based on the recommendation of one of Saul's palace servants. King Saul, you might recall, often struggled with regular bouts of depression and dark feelings. Well, David had been summoned to the royal court in order to play soothing music, music that would ease Saul's mental and emotional state and thus make the king feel better. And so far, David's musical presence had proven, had proven to be a reliable healing tonic for Saul. But this time around, David is no longer just another one of the king's subjects. Now, every time King Saul looks at David, he sees the one person whom he perceives the people love more than him. 
consumed by this thought. King Saul hurls the spear he holds in his hand toward David, not once, but twice. And despite Saul's intentions of nailing him to the wall, David evades certain death two times. Finding himself unable to live by the adage, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, King Saul now sends David away, surprisingly promoting his perceived adversary to command over a thousand of his royal troops. However, if we read between the lines, Saul isn't promoting David as much as he's trying to put David in harm's way, in the line of fire, on the battlefield, and thus likely to be killed. But King Saul's plan backfires, it backfires immensely. Rather than being killed in battle, David proves to be both a powerful warrior and a leader. His, he has consistent success, which brings him even greater publicity and adulation among the people. The people love David. The soldiers love David. But King Saul only grows more and more resentful and fearful of David. Saul, therefore, doesn't give up in trying to orchestrate David's downfall. The third time around, the third time's the charm, Saul adopts something of a different tact. The king shrewdly and deceitfully offers the hand of his older daughter, Meribah, to his in marriage to David. But this offer comes with a price to be paid, a bride price as it was known and was customary back in the ancient world. David must continue fighting on the front lines to earn her hand, thus again increasing the chances he will be killed in battle. David, however, responds to this offer by the king with great humility. He recognizes his family isn't worthy of such an honor, of such stature to become the king's son-in-law, and so he refuses. And King Saul marries off his older daughter to someone else. But Saul isn't giving up just yet. No, he's not giving up just yet in pursuing the marriage option with David. You see, when the king hears that his younger daughter, Michal, is in love with David, Saul sees a better second opportunity to ensnare David into his trap. Working this time more subtly behind the scenes through his attendants, King Saul appeals to both David's pride and his military prowess. The bride price this time around is not a lifetime of military service, but a specific military campaign, the death of a hundred Philistines. This time around, David takes up the offer of the king, whose true motivations remain unchanged. He wants David to fall by the hand of the Philistines. But once again, King Saul's plan seriously backfires, as David delivers double the asking price for Michal's hand in marriage, not just 100, but 200 dead Philistine soldiers. Having kept his end of the arrangement, David marries Michal and now becomes Saul's son-in-law. David is now even closer to the throne of Israel. And because of this, David's marriage into Saul's family leads the king to divorce himself fully from any kinship or friendship with David at all. King Saul, we are told, no longer views David as merely a threat, but as his enemy for the rest of his days. And this is sad. It's even tragic because David proves again and again to be Saul's most loyal subject, securing the kingdom for Saul by continually fighting successful battles for Israel. And here we are. It seems like only yesterday when King Saul confronted what he believed, what he feared was the greatest threat, not only to his crown, but his very life. That threat in the bellowing, larger-than-life, armed-to-the-teeth gladiator named Goliath. But now, whether he realizes or accepts it or not, King Saul meets an even more powerful and deadly adversary. And it's not the enterprising and rising young David. It is what William Shakespeare once coined in his play Othello, the green-eyed monster, 
a menacing and insidious villain so universal in our human nature that it mocks the very meat it feeds on. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about right now. If so, let the emphasis on the color green be your guide to what I'm saying, to recognizing this dangerous foe that not just King Saul, but that we all face. You see, the green-eyed monster that I'm speaking of that takes hold of poor Saul is jealousy or envy. In the English language, the words jealousy and envy are often used interchangeably to distinguish between two emotional states. And this, the, the distinction between the two, uh, according to modern psychology, can be summed up this way. Envy describes a negative reaction caused by wanting something that someone else has, whereas jealousy describes a negative reaction caused by a perceived attack on something we already have. Another way to put this is to say that envy is about the fear of lacking something, whereas jealousy is about the fear of losing something. Though not exactly synonymous, the difference between envy and jealousy is really a fine one. They are very similar and are often experienced together. And without a doubt, this is true in the case of King Saul. Think about it. On the one hand, Saul clearly envies the growing popularity, the success, and the goodwill that David has. At the same time, Saul is also jealous of David, fearful that he will lose the throne to David. Hence, when the spark of the king's envy and jealousy are both lit, Saul murmurs to himself, what more can he, what more can David get but the kingdom? The moment the king surrenders before the green-eyed monster, as Saul continues to feed his jealousy and envy of David, we watch him quickly unravel and lose himself. We witness what a cancer the twin towers of jealousy and envy can become in our lives, obscuring our view of anything and everything else except what we fear we don't have, except what we fear we're going to lose. First, envy and jealousy rob King Saul of his gratitude for his blessings. For the victory God secured for him and for the nation over the Philistines. Next, Saul's envy and jealousy spur him to make an enemy out of an ally as he impulsively lashes out seeking to harm the one person who's been able to bring him some relief when he struggles with depression. Then, envy and jealousy twist Saul's heart to the point of trying to use a brother's zeal for God, David's willingness to fight the Lord's battles and defend the Lord's people, to use that as a weapon against David, as a means of taking David out. That envy and jealousy become all that Saul feeds on becomes apparent as he doesn't hesitate to use others, loved ones, his own daughters, as he pawns them in his effort to end David's life. And as we'll later see, the hydra that is Saul's envy and jealousy will only grow larger and even more lethal over the next few chapters. Out of his deep insecurity, the king will make several more attempts to murder David. And as this cancer spreads, Saul will even curse and attempt to kill his own son. And then, a little later, strike down all the residents of a town, a high priest and 85 other priests, along with their wives, children, and friends, all murdered in cold blood because of Saul's envy and jealousy of David. From this defining moment and for the rest of his tormented days, envy and jealousy will eat the king alive. Though the king never found any actual evidence to support the specter raised by all his envy and jealousy, Saul, for the rest of his tormented days, is willing to take another man's life to put his mind at ease. 
He will eventually sacrifice his family and the nation he was supposed to be serving in the effort to satisfy the big, bad, green-eyed monster. Have we seen the green-eyed monster rear its ugly head in our lives lately? Has, the, has envy of another person's circumstances, their influence, their success, their gifts become an itch in our lives we keep trying to scratch? Has jealousy, the perceived threat of losing what we have to another, losing our privilege, losing our position, losing our power, losing our significance, begun to preoccupy all our thoughts and our attention? At first glance, we may not perceive any real risk in our lives from either or both of these mindsets of envy or jealousy. I mean, we all get a little jealous. We all get a tad envious of people from time to time, don't we? Is it really that big of a deal? Saul's story is a cautionary tale for us in which we learn the seedbed of jealousy and envy can quickly become one step short of murder. The snare of jealousy and envy is one of those threats where if we give our jealousy and envy an inch, both will take a yard or more, gradually throwing us into a tailspin of unhealthy obsession, continued misery, and ultimately our own demise. We need to learn from the story of Saul to recognize from where the green-eyed monster emerges in our hearts and minds. Envy and jealousy fester and grow in the soil of our wounded pride. Envy and jealousy take root when we are more focused on the talent, the wealth, the reputation, the fruitfulness of others, perceiving ourselves to be in competition with them, rather than being content and celebrating our own abilities, our own resources, our own relationships. Now, we may not throw spears at others or try to send them into harm's way by way of a marriage offer like King Saul, but we can still act out of nagging, fuming jealousy and envy through words spoken in bitterness and resentment, through actions marked by aggression and hostility or deceit and manipulation. Is there anywhere in our lives right now, in our relationships, in our marriage, our family, our work, our friendships, where we can't help comparing ourselves to others, where we keep feeling like we're not getting what we deserve, where we find ourselves faunching at the bit rather than rejoicing in the good fortune of others? If perhaps now we're starting to see through the struggles of Saul what we ourselves are capable of, let us also find the necessary corrective in the witness of Saul's son, Jonathan. Whew, thankfully, Saul is not the only picture we are given of our human nature in this passage. There is also the reflection of our humanity in the person of Jonathan. Now, if you think about it, Jonathan had more reason than Saul to be jealous or envious of David. Let's remember, before David was celebrated for defeating the Philistines through the slaying of the giant Goliath, Jonathan held that particular distinction of the champion against the Philistines himself. A few chapters back, King Saul and his army, remember, were seriously outnumbered and outgunned as the Philistines prepared to make an assault against them. And then it was Jonathan, like David, who relied on the leading and power of the Lord and led the Israels not just in holding back the Philistines, but in, in accomplishing what appeared to be an impossible victory over them. But now, whereas King Saul is unwilling to even share the limelight with David, perceiving him as a rival, Jonathan, in the aftermath of David's victory over Goliath, embraces David in a covenant of friendship. 
Jonathan, as the crown prince of the kingdom of Israel, as the assumed heir to his father's throne, Jonathan potentially had more to lose with David's continued rise. And yet Jonathan, unlike his father, King Saul, does not attempt to secure his place on the throne. Instead, we are told, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. In other words, Jonathan was symbolically yielding all the signs of his position and leadership to David. He was yielding them as if to communicate, you deserve all of this more than me. Now, we may be tempted in viewing these contrasting pictures of Saul and Jonathan to label Jonathan as the better person than Saul. And while Jonathan's posture toward David, Jonathan's choices, if you will, as a human being, are without question better than Saul's inclinations and decisions, we need to realize what makes Jonathan's posture and choices possible. And the answer is, Jonathan is looking at his life through the eyes of faith. King Saul insisted on looking at what he believed he could manage and control, and that is, he tried to manage and control, holding back David and thus holding on to the throne of Israel. Jonathan, on the other hand, recognizes what Saul refuses to see, what again is repeated throughout this passage, that the Lord was with David, that God clearly was moving in David's life, preparing him to be the next king of Israel. Now, Jonathan probably had no idea what this would mean for him. And yet Jonathan chooses to live in dependence upon the Lord's provision. Jonathan believed all the fortune and prosperity, all the success and gifts he had experienced previously were gifts of grace from the good hand of a perfect father. And so Jonathan in this moment was content to trust the Lord for what would come next. And it was out of that grateful reliance, rather than attempting to take control of his own destiny, that Jonathan embraces David exactly the way Jesus taught us to engage each other. Did we notice? It's repeated twice in verse 1 and verse 3. Jonathan expressed his dependence on the Lord by loving David as he loved himself. The greatest commandment lived out for us in technicolor on the pages of the Old Testament. Jonathan's love for David exemplifies a central Christian ethic to love God by loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Jonathan loves David not because David necessarily loves him, not based on the condition that David has promised Jonathan anything. Jonathan loves David not in order to get, in other words, in order to improve his situation or standing. Jonathan loves David as himself. Jonathan loves David in order to give, not to get, to give David the same freedom, the same respect, the same grace that Jonathan understands the Lord has given him. Jonathan, the freedom, the respect, and the grace for David, like Jonathan, to become all that God intends him to be. Without perceiving David as a threat, without trying to keep him in check as a rival that he has to conquer. This understanding offers us more insight, actually, into exactly what jealousy and envy are. If we think about it, at their core, jealousy and envy derive from our dispute and displeasure with the Lord's reign over all creation, including our lives. Our dispute with the God who is the one who gives and takes away. To be jealous or envious is, in essence, to deny the goodness, the wisdom, the control of the Lord that Father God knows best. Jealousy and envy in provoking us to repeatedly say, it's not fair. Tempt us to believe we know better than the Lord. 
that we need to take things over because we can do a better job than God. But beloved, any attempt to play God never goes well for us. God is always bigger. And the Lord remains, regardless of what we do or don't do, God remains always in control. For all our efforts to the contrary, the Lord's will still gets done. And we end up like the older son, the elder son in that parable of the prodigal told by Jesus. We end up standing outside the party that is the kingdom of God, refusing to go inside with nothing more than our frustrations and our discontent. Once again, that's where King Saul is at the end of this passage, right? Did we notice that? Everything, everything Saul did to try and harm or destroy David ironically worked to David's advantage and Saul's disadvantage. The harder Saul worked at David's downfall, the more Saul just assisted David's rise in fame and status, and the more corrupt and lost Saul found himself before God and the nation. The more Saul acted out of jealousy and envy, the more Saul propelled the opposite of what he wanted. And it's not unique to Saul's case. It's a repeated story, a pattern throughout the Bible. Just ask Cain. Just ask Jacob and Esau. Just ask Leah and Rachel. Just ask Joseph's brothers. Just ask the first generation of Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. My friends, jealousy and envy are mind-altering drugs. Both warp our perception of reality. Both poison and harm our relationship with others. Both leave us trapped and, in the end, suffocated by misery and bitterness. And the only antidote, our best and only defense against the green-eyed tyrant, is not to minimize the reality and the threat of envy and jealousy, but to confess both and repent of their lingering presence in our lives. They are present in our lives because we are constantly encouraged. We're even manipulated by advertising to compare ourselves with others. We are repeatedly taught not to be satisfied or to appreciate what we have, but to be manically driven to get more, to keep up with the Joneses, to become the envy of the neighborhood, to make everyone else jealous. It's become a badge of honor and respect to accumulate more, to stay ahead of everyone else, to one-up the other person. In many ways, making others jealous or envious of us has become the modern definition of success. Biblically, however, indulging envy and jealousy are defined as the road to ruin. My friends, to turn away from the green-eyed monster, we have to turn towards the Lord. Daily, we must count our blessings. For thankfulness and jealousy and envy don't occupy the same heart. Jealousy and envy actually are counting other people's blessings rather than our own. Jealousy and envy gain no quarter in our minds and in our hearts when we remember the promises of the gospel. That our identity, that our security are not in what we accomplish or achieve or don't but that our identity and security rest in our relationship with the Lord, in the love God has for us, in the love God has shown us in Jesus Christ, in the eternal love Christ continues to express to us through his word and spirit by giving us each day all that we need, more than enough to take the next step on this journey of faith and flourish. Let us then choose to look and live out of the faith that we have been given, that God is good, that the Lord knows what's best and that God is in control. Let us abide in our identity and security as children of the kingdom of God, 
no longer viewing other people as a threat to us, but embracing all persons as our brothers and sisters, loving them as we love ourselves, loving them as we are loved by God in Christ. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.